Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Today we have on the show Janice Zak, the founder of WeFlow, a sales productivity tool that helps account executives save time, structure their day, and win more deals on Salesforce. The company is backed by Cherry Ventures and founders of Contentful, Pitch, SoundCloud, Tier, among others, and they've raised $2.7 million in 2021. Janice, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Thanks for the invitation. Janice, take us to the top. How can WeFlow help an account executive close more deals? Yeah, I mean, so the founding story of WeFlow is really that the first time I used Salesforce was with my previous company called Fiverr in 2010. And what we realized throughout the years was that a lot of the jobs that an account executive have to do happen outside of Salesforce. Whether you take notes in Apple Notes or OneNote, whether you manage your pipeline in a spreadsheet or, you know, lock your emails via Google Workspace. And typically, account executives, customer success managers, SDRs, BDRs, uh, have to go into Salesforce to make sure that the data is there, but they're not necessarily fond of it. And often data quality is a huge challenge. And so what we build is essentially a modern revenue workspace, which helps revenue potentials to spend less time updating a manual data entry fields to help focus on their prospects and their customers and essentially close more deals or, you know, make customers happier. That's great. So how did you know that this is a pain point? What sort of frameworks, methodologies did you do to come out to this conclusion? Yeah. I mean, so I started my entrepreneurial journey in 08 and then started a company called Fiverr in 09, where I always run product and the go-to-market teams. And so, I mean, we've been a Salesforce customer at this company and various other companies I invested in or worked with. And you go to 10 companies and it's a very universal problem. And I think it has to do with Salesforce having done a very, very good job of becoming an open platform, essentially the infrastructure routing system for all things customer data, but also today, you know, financial processes or HR processes you're taking in. Uh, almost like a ERP system, right? And so what we found really interesting is that consumerized software is something everybody gets familiar with, right? You're familiar with Notion, Asana, Trello, like um, modern software. And so we were wondering, okay, can why can't we build a workflow automation tool which makes it easier for the people to understand where to focus on, you know, what helps them to drive success in their day-to-day role and how to eliminate busy work and automate busy work. And so there's a few things we did to essentially find out, is there a really big problem, a universal problem? So I'm happy to talk a bit more about that. You mentioned that you observed a lot of people that they have these tabs open and there's notes scattered all over the place. But we are creatures of habit. So how did you convince your first users that they need to change this habit and just go to WeFlow? Yeah, I think it's a very good question. So I think fundamentally, you know, it's really about like trying to figure out, should you actually commit on solving this problem? Is the problem a nice to have problem or a like a, a really a pain, which essentially is a deadly disease and has a lot of trigger effects 
in this case for businesses or for human beings, right? And so I think, you know, a great place to start is where you actually observe specific core processes being taken in other applications, although, you know, the CRM provides that functionality, right? This was really how we saw it. So we basically sat down next to hundreds of AEs to essentially figure out how do they work today and basically did a very deep dive on what is annoying and what would they wish for and to essentially figure out, you know, should we start solving this problem or rather focus on something else? And because we had, you know, I think experience in that area and it's been a space we've been in for quite a long time, it, it wasn't so surprising, I'd say. I think then the question is more like, where do you start to solve the problem really well? And again, I mean, ideally you start with things which are not going as planned and which have significant ripple effects for a business. So, for example, if you look at most pipelines, right, sales pipelines, there's always the question around like, how healthy is the pipeline? What are deals which are actually real versus what are the rotten deals which actually just sit in the pipeline, right? And so the pipeline should actually help you to identify, you know, where to focus your time and what are the deals which are really valuable and what are the deals which actually are just sitting there and should actually be on closed lost and rather have a closed loss prospecting view so that you approach them later on. And uh, the same is true with, for example, discovering qualification journeys. It's very hard to actually do in Salesforce. So, you know, how do you streamline your discovery and qualification processes so that you do a good job of logging all the calls and notes, actually making sure that they are there to do proper handovers, that you acquire the information which is important to qualify whether there's a real prospect, there's a real opportunity or it's actually unqualified. And this is another area where if you don't do it well, you lose deals, but you also spend a lot of time on actually unqualified opportunities, which has a big effect on the business. So I think these were typical places to start. And then from there, you get a lot deeper into all the different jobs to be done, but just to name some very specific examples here. Do you remember your first paying customer? Yeah, of course, I think everybody remembers their first paying customer and the way we built the product. And I think it's also pretty common and good practice is uh, together with customers. Like that it almost becomes blurred because fundamentally what you want to do in the first place is you don't want to optimize for paying customers. You want to optimize for solving the problem really, really well and ideally drive you know high retention, engagement and user happiness, right? NPS. And, you know, you can apply questions like, you know, how would it feel if you didn't have that problem anymore? And then, you know, like score that and segment it into the different personas and user groups. So I think in the early stages, it's really like okay, identify a huge problem, then, you know, try to build products. It's super interesting because even there, you often realize that you might not be onto something because the first thing before people actually paying is giving you their time. Right. So if you want to have design partners and they're actually not excited about you solving the problem, maybe the problem isn't that important for them to be solved. Right. So I think that's a very good first segue into then essentially building the product close to customers, acquiring more data points than just your intuition, right, based on qualitative data, quantitative data and feedback data. And then basically naturally leaving into paying customers and then actually figuring out pricing. What was your launch strategy at the beginning? So you have the product live. How did you position yourself 
to reach your customer? Yeah, yeah, it's a very, very good question. I mean, fundamentally, I guess the positioning and messaging is probably one of the first things or product marketing like is, is the first things where you see a lot of companies or websites where you go onto the website and you're like, okay, it sounds amazing, but I have no clue what the company is doing. And obviously you want to avoid that because in the, your initial target audience needs to understand what you're doing very quickly, right? And you have very low attention span. So I think fundamentally what we've been doing is very early launch a you know, homepage, just one page, and then just A-B testing different messages. Other friends I know, they do that with ads. And then basically they run ads just to you know, get better views on click rates. I mean, debatable how good that works. But I think on a website, it's, it's very interesting. Even if you don't have much, it helps you to get a feel how to talk about the problem you're solving, how to talk about the use cases, how to talk about the solution and the value proposition. So, yeah. Perfect. If we now expand a little bit to your first 100 customers, you have a product, you know your market, and you have a strategy to get those 100 customers. How did you start? What strategies did you use? And how long did you wait until you figured out that this strategy is something you can scale? Yeah, it's a very, very good question. Again, I mean... Like, I think it's, it's really about like testing, iterating what works and what doesn't. That is really specific to the problem you're solving. So it really starts with making sure that you know your ICP, so your ideal customer profile, knowing your personas, knowing whether your product-led marketing is sales-led. In the beginning, again, these are all assumptions. You test out specific channels and often in an early stage B2B SaaS company, that's a combination of founder-led sales and one marketing channel, which you seem to make work. And for us, that's actually pretty similar. At some point, you see specific things working better than others and you double down on those. And it's always a bit hard to know what exactly this is. So I think you have to be kind of open, but, you know, come in with like some maybe well-qualified views on the campaigns you're running. So what has worked? better for you, a product-led growth strategy or a sales-led growth strategy? Yeah, it's a very good uh, question. So I think when you typically talk about product-led growth, it's really like you basically don't talk to customers. They can just sign up and use the product and pay. For us, that is actually how we build the product. And I think I've come to the realization that like, there's a difference between like how you build a product. There's a lot of companies which couldn't just apply that model. And it has a lot to do with you know, how easy it is to get started, onboarding, retention, engagement. So I think this is how we build the product. But the go-to-market is, is, is actually a lot more, like it's, it's actually a combination of like, you then take product qualified leads, market qualified leads, sales qualified leads. And fundamentally, there's still a sales process to convert, you know, engage users into real customers and so so meaning paying customers right again this is probably something which is very specific to us but it's been a big part of the strategy excellent so going back to uh, your first 100 paying customers what did you learn from them and how that did you take those learnings and use them for the next 100 and the following 100 
Yeah, I mean, the next 100 still outstanding. We actually haven't officially launched. <laughs> There's two things here. Like one is you learn a lot for your product. Product is an ever-growing evolution and customers will tell you very explicitly what they wish for and what they want to see better, right? And you have to somehow mirror that with your own assumptions and strategy where this should be going, right? So I think you learn a lot for product and this is not just telling you, but also just measuring it, right? So obviously segment, amplitude, mix panel, whatever you're using, Hotjar, right? Like there's a bunch of tools to help you understand your users better to then essentially derive priorities on your roadmap and essentially product strategy um, decisions. And then the second thing is it tells you a lot about who are your customers and how does your ICP and persona look like? What are the objections? You know, what are things they look for? What are the value propositions? What resonates well? What doesn't resonate well? So I think most software as a service companies built by specific market segments, whether it's SMB, mid-market, enterprise. So that model, I think, is quite important. And then what you just refer to, like product-led, marketing, sales-led, right? You learn a lot about that and where to double down on. So to derive, you know, your first hires from that, when you grow your go-to-market team, because typically you start in SaaS company with a product engineering team, building a product engineer, building the product, and then you have to make decisions on where to double down on, on the go-to-market team. And then obviously with more customers, ideally come more customers because you can work with the customers as references to do, you know, case studies or, you know, share customer love on your respective channels, whether that's LinkedIn or Twitter, wherever your audience spend the most time. Yeah. So I think uh, fundamentally, like I look at a startup as a general learning journey. And sometimes you find out things you just didn't expect in terms of your personas or ICPs or the problems even they face and you actually help solve them really, really well. You're using currently a freemium model. So you have a free tier and then you have a $30 tier and then a $60 tier. How do you determine pricing when it comes to a freemium model? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, I think fundamentally pricing, again, is a very iterative approach. You can look at it from a theoretical standpoint, right? Like, what do I need to have to support a sales or marketing or product-led motion? You know, what's my audience size? And like, just model it. But then you can also, I think you really need to see what's a realistic pricing, what are customers willing to pay? And I think there, right, like it's, First level, get time from people who don't have time. Nobody has time, right? So they give you their time and feedback. That's very valuable. So you're probably onto something. And then second, in terms of pricing, if they pay, it's another, it's another layer. And then I think the best companies, they can prove the value as an ROI. And I think that's fundamentally where you want to be because then it becomes a rational decision to use you. And I think there's specific examples where this is, very, very extreme, and you can very easily measure the ROI of a product. And I think, you know, working towards that, that's typically not something you do in the early stages that comes a bit later. Yeah, it's something always good to keep in mind. You recently raised 2.7 million. Walk us through the challenges you face 
to get the sum of money, especially in a downturn market. How many VCs did you reach out to? How many rejections did you get? What sort of advice can you give for new entrepreneurs who are trying to, to raise a round? Yeah. So uh, we raised around before the downturn. So last year, um, just for full transparency. And so I started and uh, also sold, uh, run a different company before. So I think it was a bit um, easier to raise money as a second time around entrepreneur than maybe first time around, right? But I, I think, you know, it comes down like what we're seeing now And I started my first company in 2009, directly after the financial crisis. So it wasn't a great area to, to raise. And the funding markets were very different, right? So I think, you know, what we're looking at right now is, is still a lot better than before. But I think in the end, it's, people are just a lot more selective. I mean, I think there's so many things in terms of best practices, how to raise money. Chances of raising money always increase if you have a huge addressable market, You're very clear that it's actually a venture case so that you can create a very big outcome and you have more signals than less that customers think the way the same. And whether that's usage data, that's customers paying, that's fast growth in MRR, ARR, load churn. I think depending on the stage, um, I recommend to look at Christoph's uh, funding napkin Point uh, 0.9 funding that can uh, for, for SaaS, there's other things for marketplaces, right? So I think being realistic of where you are and where you play, and then there's a variety of other things like how you want to time it right. You, you want to make sure that you don't have like a, you know, three, four months process, but you actually talk to the right people in like two, three weeks quickly so that, you know, it's not dragging on for a long time. But yeah, I think in these markets, it's really about like going back to the fundamentals. Let's segue into another topic dear to my heart, which I always ask on this podcast is entrepreneur's anxiety. Have you had that uh, feeling and what sort of hacks or tactics you use to stay productive? Yeah, I think everybody has it. Look, I think the reality is like when you read the news, it always sounds super easy and you read about all these successes, but nobody writes about the uh, 10 or 20 in one, you know, failures. And these are not failures, right? Like I think in the end, everybody is standing, waking up and, you know, essentially deciding to, to start a company. I mean, it's, it's already very different to many others out there. But at the same time, it's, it's just uh, time. It is super hard and it's not just the workload, but, you know, for some it's the responsibility. Um, so I think that's very, very normal because you are often challenged with things you don't know how to solve. So quickly learning. I mean, for me, to be very specific, I started my first company when I was 20, almost 24. And now I have a family. And so that's very different. And I think it kind of makes you realize, you know, that like there's also other things uh, in life than just this, right? So maybe taking yourself not too serious, but at the same time, you need that to succeed, right? It's really hard. I'd say like trying to find ways to do other things. And that's for me, like, it's very simple, right? When I'm with my daughter, it's very hard to think about work. But I think most entrepreneurs I know, they have a hard time of not thinking. So I have this problem when, you know, our daughter wakes up at night, I go over 
put it to sleep, but I can't go back to sleep because I start thinking product or go to market, right? That's very unhealthy. I mean, that's not good. I'm a big believer in, you know, enough sleep, really optimizing for productivity, really, you know, trying to be very good to yourself so that you can get the most out of yourself and the team and being really productive and making progress. So for me, you know, like, this is a very specific example, quite, quite personal, yeah. Thank you for sharing your uh, personal uh, journey. If you were on a deserted island and you had to take with you three books and two TV series, which one would you pick? That's a good question. Obviously, I would take books I probably haven't read, but it's probably many. A book I really like was like Siddhartha. I don't know if it's so, so known. It's basically a journey of life. Quite cool book. I always loved like From Good to Great. It's very outdated probably, but the core thesis is, you know, look for getting the best people on board and then trying to figure out what, you know, how to, how to solve the problem or how to become better. I think that's actually something which is very close to my heart because I think a company is very much about that, like building a platform for great people to do great work. Yeah, and the last one would be probably one I'd ask around, like, you know, what to, what else to read, probably more like a textbook style. Uh, I always started, you know, learning computer science like three years ago uh, because I never had, you know, the chance to do it. I just started very early founding companies, but like that's something I'm very interested in and love to spend more time on. And um, yeah, and I think in terms of TV series, oh, I mean, I don't know. Uh, honestly, I think there's a few good documentaries I like. Um, I really liked True Detective's first episode. Quite, quite dark, but kind of unique. I don't know. Been big into, also like Lord of the Rings a lot. I don't know. I mean, there's many. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Janice, what's next for WeFlow? Yeah, I mean, look, I think fundamentally we're quite excited about helping revenue teams to succeed. And, you know, we've been really focused on helping individual contributors to do better pipeline management, note-taking, task management, email logging, activity tracking, and just spending less time on busy work, focusing and making them more successful fundamentally. Because I fundamentally agree if you make individuals more successful, everybody wins. And yeah, we're building out a variety of components in different areas like automations, collaboration, and insights. So that's like a big effort. And then just really solving the problem better every week. And yeah, working with more fantastic customers as you know, we've already done and, and trying to help them guide towards, have them continuously helping us to build this better, right? So, you know, I think big believer in, you know, very honest and direct feedback. And I think that has helped us a lot. Yeah, it's probably the, the thing I appreciate the most uh, other than, you know, just working with a fantastic team on this. So, yeah, that's next. Janice, thank you for being part of our show. We wish you the best of luck with your journey. This was a great episode. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers. 